Tuesday and welcome to the Colby Daniels podcast presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products. You can visit the website abotanicalcompany.com or give them a call 405-458-9699. Educate yourself on what they have available and how it can improve your daily life. Easy to order online. Again, abotanicalcompany.com. Easy and safe pickup. Again, Artisan Botanicals. We have the college football playoff tonight. I don't anticipate we're going to see a ton of movement as far as Oklahoma is concerned. I don't think there's an expectation for me that there's a a jump coming, Uh, but we'll see what happens. Obviously, the big jump would come a couple weeks from now in a Big 12 championship setting. Uh, But again, we'll talk about this tomorrow as far as the ranking goes and if we see any surprises, which again, I don't anticipate. Um, But we do have Tuesday night football, Cowboys-Ravens tonight. Uh, As a Cowboy fan, Glad to see Lamar Jackson coming back to uh, once again help usher a new era of Cowboy football in in 2021, as well as maybe a better draft pick. But uh, all of that aside, we're going to talk a lot of OU and OSU football today um, and and the Big 12 in general, I, I think, as far as where the conference is, the direction the conference is going, and kind of closing that gap between the SEC, which has dominated the sport, and where the Big 12 and maybe the stigma of the Big 12 has been. So we're going to have all of those conversations with my guest today, every Tuesday, Eric G, co-host of the Pat Jones Show on the Tulsa Sports Animal. Eric G is my guest. Eric, how are you? How's your week going? Fantastic, man. Um, So far, so good. My son had his high school football banquet last night. That was always good. Wish they would have been celebrating a state championship versus being state runner-up, but hey, that's not a bad way to end your high school career, and got a chance to eat a little steak, and hosted a good show yesterday with Pat, so it's it's so far, I mean, on Monday, we're batting a thousand. We're batting a thousand uh, as we hit into Tuesday, and hopefully it stays that way through the rest of the week. You know, I don't follow high school football as closely as I used to, but I, I know a lot of people that do felt like this might be the year that the West Side really had an opportunity, and uh, obviously that wasn't the case. But um, poor Jinx, man. They can't catch a break. Finally, they're able to get over the hump, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, you, you, just, you know, you, for a program like that that has struggled for, <laughs> you know, so long in the past, you know, especially in these past 25 years, Colby, they've just struggled so right. hard to, to just, you know, collect gold balls. I mean, they, I think they went a whole, what, two, three years without winning a state championship? Oh, my gosh. I mean, what you know, you, you, have, Jinx? you have the Chicago <laughs> Cubs, you have the Boston Red Sox, and you have the Jinx Trojans as uh, these, you know, these <laughs> miracle teams that have, have finally stopped these championship droughts. <laughs> uh, celebration in the street. Now people in Jinx can go. People <laughs> in Jinx can die can die happy because they've lived a complete life. <laughs> well, they uh, look. They were in danger of having like the first group of kids go through their entire high school uh, career having not won one. Correct? Has it been four years? Yes, and yeah, and that's it's kind of crazy. But I think it also speaks to just how big the commitment is, especially in that part of the state. The best, the best comparison you, you can really draw it to is the SEC. At least that's what it, what it was kind of put to me by Bill Haston, is he said, what do they say in the SEC? It just means more. Well, here on the east side, it just means more. But because of Jinx, because of Union, 
you've seen Owasso make an incredible commitment to their facilities. Broken Arrow apparently has the best facilities in the state. They've got, and they've got the largest enrollment. Bigsby has a not a, one a knockout campus that looks almost like a small college, and their stadium, while lagging behind is it, the other the other four that we just mentioned, certainly. Uh, is nothing to seize at, and, it, and it's their facilities are better than pretty much anything you're going to see on the on the west side of the state, and they're going to move up into six a one here in the next couple of years. So for those who are used to jinx or union, being able to rip off four or five state titles in a row, theoretically that that should just not happen now because those, those teams are going to cannibalize each other in the playoffs. I mean, one of them most likely will come out with the gold ball, but I don't think you'll ever see another dynasty quite like you saw with Alan Trimble and Jinx starting in about 1997 when they ripped off whatever it was, six, seven in a row before Union actually got one. But um, it's made for some incredibly stiff competition. What I'm very interested in seeing, Colby, because there's really only two schools in the West that can that can do what they do, and that's Mustang and UConn. And UConn has definitely made a commitment facility-wise. Mustang is getting there. I'm interested to see what they do as far as youth program, middle school, and getting really just, and this is the key to high school sports, Getting kids in those towns from the time that they're in kindergarten all the way to the time that they're in fifth grade wanting to be Yukon Millers or Mustang Broncos because that's the way it is in Owasso and Jinx is those kids don't, yeah, sure, they want to play for OU or OSU, but there's something very special about being a Jinx Trojan or a Union, whatever their new nickname is going to be, or a Broken Arrow Tiger. If UConn and Mustang can create that, the West Side could actually have some formidable opponents, but right now they just haven't. And for the Edmond schools, you got to kind of look out like Santa Fe did and be blessed with a lot of D1 talent to compete at that level. You're not going to have the depth, but maybe you can have the talent that Santa Fe did, but all that runs in cycles depending on where kids are moving, where families are, and what is the hot school at the moment, which is another topic entirely, but um, it's going to be crazy. And, and and for those Jinx Trojans fans, and they do have them, people whose kids have already graduated school and gone for years, for those fans who are looking for that dynasty again, those those days are long gone because it is going to be absolute hell yeah. to play in that part of the state for the, for the next few years, which <laughs> fun for us to watch, maybe not so much fun for for coaches who have overzealous fan bases. I, look, I'm just shocked more than anything that we were able to get a high school football season in and that you know we've reached this point where state championship games are being played and there is going to be at least a conclusion to a lot of these classes. Now, there's still time for some of these to be played and, and maybe something to, to happen, but uh, for the most part, I think it, it's expected that they're all going to get played and that there's going to be 2020 state champions in, in football, at least in the state of Oklahoma. Um. That's probably the one thing that I was surprised wasn't mentioned last night at the banquet uh, by Kyle White is just how fortunate the state of Oklahoma was to be one of the few states in America that didn't cancel fall football. And there was a kid from California who moved out here to Oklahoma to play because California didn't have it. Uh, You saw the Washington, D.C. area didn't have fall football. And there's a lot of 
a, a lot of states that want to play in the spring. Your problem is, is that if you've got a high cal- a high talent caliber kid, uh, like this year, I'll, I'll take Colin Oliver at, at Santa Fe. If Oklahoma were to, were to have moved their football season to the spring, Colin Oliver's not going to play for Santa Fe because he's got everything finished up, ready to go. He's going to graduate in December, and he'll be on the campus of Oklahoma State come January. So Oklahoma, these kids in Oklahoma were very lucky and give, give a lot of credit to the parents uh, for making this happen and following some, some strict guidelines and the coaches themselves and, and really everybody at the school involved with this because especially in the summer, you had to have kids coming in in groups. They had to be distance apart. They had to mask up. Um, you had a situation. You had situations where during practice where half the team would be on one sideline, half the team would be on the other, and after play you couldn't high five and do more. You, you couldn't have any sort of normalcy. You couldn't hang out. Yeah. And Coach White said last night, it's like something that really dawned on me. But I mean, think back to the days you were playing high school. How many times did you finish either practice or off season workout where you just hung out in the parking lot? talking to friends you didn't necessarily get out of there unless you had a date well they couldn't even do that right it was workouts done get your stuff you're not changing the locker room get your car and go home and don't go out on the weekends don't hang out with each other after the games get home be safe stay away because of not just not just the virus which in and of itself is beyond god awful but contact tracing and all that so Hats off to everybody, everybody in the state of Oklahoma for being able to pull this off this year because no I, I had my doubts just going into it big time. I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work. Yeah, for sure. And and at Oklahoma, uh, that their their numbers are down. They released their numbers yesterday. Uh, they're on the the decline. Uh, you know, last week, obviously, you know, especially when we talked last Tuesday, we were having the conversation about whether Oklahoma Baylor was even going to be played, and and they were able to to get that game done on Saturday night, but, you know, it's it's one of those things that unfortunately has to be discussed every time we talk about football, at least in 2020, and, and you know, the perfect example of this is this morning where Tulsa and Cincinnati have had to postpone or, I guess, cancel their football game on Saturday, which means the championship game is going to take place in Cincinnati a week from Saturday. Man, Tulsa got screwed. Tulsa got royally screwed on that, and um, not knowing all the particulars because right before we went on, my co-host Pat Jones called me to tell me the news, and then you reconfirmed it to me. Um, you know, my and there it is. There, I'm now looking at the press release uh, from the American Athletic Conference. <laughs> my email about it. Um, Cincinnati and Tulsa, both both teams. Blah blah blah. Um, looking to see who had the major COVID issues here, but for Tulsa, who is undefeated in the conference this year. And their only loss is Oklahoma State. I don't understand why they would not be able to host this game or why you can't find a neutral site to play to play this game. I mean, honestly, in a year that it doesn't matter if fans go or not, why can't you play this game in Memphis? Why can't you play this game in Tampa or Orlando or in any of the other cities that the American Athletic Conference has, if I'm Phil Fulmer, or not Phil Fulmer, if I'm Phil Montgomery, 
I'm throwing an absolute hissy fit today. I am on the phone with my athletic director, Rick Dixon, and we are we are crawling up the rear of the AAC saying, nah, we're not, you're not doing this to us. You find a neutral site to play. We are not going to Cincinnati. Even though you know, fans, crowds, whatever it is, you need to make it fair for both teams because through no fault of Tulsa's or no fault of Cincinnati, you're just dealing with COVID restrictions. Just do it at a neutral site. Now, especially if, um, you know, especially if let's just say Memphis isn't playing that week. What's wrong with having the game there? Just go there, play the game, get it over with. At least it looks like a neutral site and a more legitimate championship game than you trying to hand it to Cincinnati because you understand that, A, them going undefeated gives them an outside shot of getting into the playoffs. But, B, of the two, Cincinnati's probably got a better shot of getting an, a New Year's Six Bowl. So it almost feels like the AAC is 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 hedging this for money versus necessarily for fair play. Yeah, look, I, this is extremely beneficial for Cincinnati, right? I mean, it's it's uh, less risk as far as losing one of these potentially two matchups to Tulsa uh, and and not losing home field advantage for a conference championship game. I mean, as as sad as it is, and and I'm not suggesting necessarily that Cincinnati is faking a COVID issue to, to not have to play the football game and to get home field advantage in a championship game, but to, to act like this doesn't extremely benefit Cincinnati is is completely foolish. So uh, I, I don't think that they should have to forfeit the game. I don't think that they should have to put a, a, an L on their overall record. But I, I think if, if you are responsible for the COVID issue that doesn't allow this game to take place, a game that determines home field advantage, then I think you probably lose the right to that home field advantage. Yeah, you do. Um, and, and I'm surprised, Colby. I, look, I understand that when you hold these games at neutral sites, there, there's a lot of money involved to hold that because you've got to pay for the staff. You've, you've probably got to rent out the site. You've got to pay for the workers. And you're only getting so much of the gate. And, and whoever hosts it is going to make money off itself. But you would think with championship games, um, all these championship games in the Power Five conferences, well, I guess, I don't know, is the Pac-12 doing it at a neutral site or are they still doing home site. Does the Pac-12 still Pac-12 play football? Might... I don't know if I've even paid attention to that. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that, that's a good <laughs> question. Let me, uh, I'll do some research on that. Aaron is, okay, yeah. Um, but you would think just for legitimacy purposes, you'd find a, a, a neutral site to host that game. So at least it looks like it's fair to both teams. I mean, theoretically, I don't have a problem with you hosting on-home sites for, for lots of reasons. Um, but if it's a situation like this where both teams are undefeated in the conference going into that championship game, right? it, it really just – it feels like the AAC really is just trying to do everything they can to give, to give Cincinnati – every opportunity to get into the to get into the college football playoff. And now it's one of those things where, you know, if you weren't openly rooting for Tulsa, it'd be a whole lot of fun to watch him win just to bite the conference a little bit here. Um, sort of get the conference's motivations, but it, it seems right. like you're, you're doing it at the expense of 
some kids who've worked their butts off this week. And let's not forget, I mean, Tulsa's got a first-round draft pick in Zayden Collins. Um, if Tulsa wins that game, especially if Tulsa were to beat them twice, I would think they would be in the, they they would be in a New Year's Six Bowl. That's a kid you want to show off. I mean, you want to show Zayden Collins off because knowing how far behind you're going to be, everybody with everybody else in recruiting, kids see him. They may think twice about whether or not going to a power five, going to a power five school over an AAC school, but. You know, who knows? They're smarter than me, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Whatever, AAC. The you AAC. hate Oklahoma. I know it. <laughs> yeah. How uh, – let's uh, let's let's hit OU football. Uh, Saturday night, they play Baylor. If you had told me going into that game that not only would Oklahoma fail to reach 300 yards offensively, but that they would also be outgained by the Baylor Bears, I would have said there's zero chance for this team to win – uh, and, and part of that is probably just because we are so used to the stigma of Oklahoma not having a defense that even in a year where they're playing really well defensively, you still just feel like so much of their success is predicated on offensive success. No, it's good to see OU win a game like that. Um, it wasn't a pretty game by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and of course, OU dealing with COVID issues from last week in, in West Virginia and probably, you know, still dealing with some, but to think that OU could win a low scoring game, which, which was unfathomable for the last two years, sort of gives credence to everybody that wants to say Alex Grinch is doing a hell of a job as, as the defensive coordinator. Um, and everybody that wants to jump on his bandwagon and talk about the development and how the defense is finally getting better, this is the kind of game that, that does that because OU did make some plays in the red zone. And I, I, think, I think it's comforting for Lincoln Riley to know that if his offense does not have that great of a game, then it, – if if his offense doesn't have that great of a game, that his defense can bail him out in, in, in some respect, and they made enough plays to do that on Saturday night. Well, when, you know, when Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray were at Oklahoma, I, part of the reason I think they were so good is because they were both operating without a safety net. Both of the, those guys knew that they had literally no margin of error. I mean, they had to be nearly perfect because their defenses were were so bad that if you didn't score on almost every drive, you were you were potentially putting your team at risk of losing a football game. And so I think when you have when you're walking that type tightrope and you don't have that safety net, it kind of forces you to be at your very best every single week. But when you do have that week where you just don't have it and and maybe you make one or two mistakes, you know, that might be enough to lose you the football game. This is a completely different scenario now where, you know, especially with a young quarterback, it's, it's, if you were putting Spencer Rattler in that same position where he had to essentially score almost every drive and be nearly perfect, I think this would be a catastrophic season for Oklahoma because, again, he's a young guy that's going to make mistakes. He's not far enough along in his career where he's going to do the same things that Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray were able to do as far as taking care of the football, not making the big mistakes in critical situations, and allowing you know his defense, obviously, with this setup to to carry the load the way that it did on Saturday night. But um, you know, even with, with Spencer Rattler on Saturday, 
he wasn't bad, but he wasn't great. It was really the first time I thought we we saw him struggle since the Texas game, early in the Texas game. But to his credit, he never looked so rattled that, you know, again, he made the big mistake. He made the mistake that potentially turned the tide or or gave Baylor the opportunity to climb back into the game, which is a good thing. Well, I mean, he's, in some extent, and some, to some extent, we're seeing him grow up, but he was already somewhat mature when he came into that role. And that's, that's something we, we got to remember every week, that when we think that this kid can't handle pressure, the game is going bad. Remember, he's, like we've said this before, he's been in the spotlight, it seems like, ever since he's been a freshman in high school, maybe ever since he's been in middle school. So he, in, in a sense, tough games, big games, whatever, the moment's never going to be too big for him the way it can get for other guys of his age. I mean, he just, he knows how to handle that situation. The other thing that, that really helps him out is that he's got enough good players around him and you've got a good leader on that deep or on that offensive line like Creed Humphrey, where when things are going bad or you're not having a uh, particularly good game, you can calm him down. You have people that can calm him down, that can, you know, say, look, just relax. You know, it's not your day. Don't worry about it. We'll figure out a way to make this happen. Ramondre Stevenson can carry the ball. Hey, there's some guys that can bail you out as receivers. Just, just remember, you're on the better team. And and that's something that, that Spencer Rattler will have. I mean, unless Texas just gets dramatically better, between now and the end of Spencer Rattler's career, every week that he takes the field in conference, he is going to have the better team. So there's never a situation where he or any other OU quarterback for the foreseeable future should panic when they're having a bad day, should feel scared because it's like, all right, we, we, we got this. Okay, maybe I don't have this today, but there is something we can do to, to get it done. And I think you're finally seeing with OU, and this is so important, um, because we talked about this with, with OSU at one point, which was, was it ever going to get to the point where the defense would start pointing fingers at the offense about them costing them games and putting them in bad positions? With OU, you're seeing complementary football. And now, as an offensive unit, you can relax. The defense is going to make plays as a defensive unit is pretty much as long as Lincoln Riley is there and and is, is heavily involved in the offense as he is. You know the offense is probably going to score. So if either one has a bad day, it kind of feels like now the other can kind of pick them up. And I don't remember the last time. I mean, you probably got to go back to what? 03, 04? I mean, maybe not quite that far. 08. Where you felt, yeah, oh wait, you could win on. Yeah, you probably got to go back to oh eight, where you felt like you could win on both sides of the ball. You felt like you were that sound on both sides of the ball that you can win. Agreed. And for OU OU fans, that's great. And unfortunately, now it's the next level. Hey, it's working <laughs> in the Big Twelve. Can it work in the college football playoff? But that's another discussion altogether. Yeah, look, the offense I think is a year away from really being back to to what they've been, I guess, since Lincoln Riley has been in Norman. And and it, a lot of that is just because they're so young across the board that I, I feel like next season, a year under Spencer Rattler's belt, another year for those receivers to develop into 
bigger playmakers, because right now that seems to be somewhat of an issue, uh, that offensive line to continue to mature. I, I think 2021 is the year where the offense is back to looking like one of the top five offenses in college football. But you look at the defense, I mean, go back to Kyler Murray's year, which was the last year of Mike Stoops in Norman before Alex Grinch got here. And I'll just give you a couple of, of rankings for this defense from where they were 2018 to where they are this year. So in total defense... In 2018, they ranked 114 of 130 teams. This year, they ranked 14. So they're up 100 spots in, in their college football ranking in total defense. Scoring defense in 2018, they were 101. In 2020, they're number 30. Third down defense in 2018, they were number 119. In 2020, they're number 5. They're the fifth best third down defense in college football. And then turnovers. In 2018, they ranked 121 of 130. And this year, they're 38. I mean, where they match up against the other defenses in college football is night and day drastically better in the second year of Alex Grinch than it was the year before he got here. I also think, and not to throw, not to throw water on the fire, but there's something that, that we need to consider here as to, there's a, couple, there's a few things we need to consider here why OU is looking better on defense. One, obviously, there's the development up front. You add a guy... Uh, like Ronnie Perkins, who is maybe the most dynamic defensive player uh, in the Big 12. But also, if you've noticed the Big 12 offenses this year, Colby, what the heck has happened? This is not the Big 12 that we've been used to seeing. I mean, it's not just that that, that OU is playing just incredibly stifling defense, keeping these teams from scoring. They're not scoring at their usual pace save for Iowa State against West Virginia. Now, the Iowa State looks like a Big 12 offense or what we're used to seeing out of a Big 12 offense on Saturday against West Virginia. But all in all, across the board, you don't have the quarterback play in this conference, but you normally do. Um, Spencer Sanders at Oklahoma State certainly hasn't lived up to expectations. Really, outside of Brock Purdy, Spencer Rattler, Ellinger, who who's the fourth best quarterback in this league? Skylar Thompson got hurt. Um, Bowman at Texas Tech took a huge step back this year, and Matt Wells can't seem to get his quarterback situation figured out down in Lubbock. Um, Duggan looked good on Saturday, but he looks good running the ball, and even Tech or even TCU didn't have what did they score? They scored twenty nine points. Twenty nine. I mean, which, that's low. That's low by Big 12 standards. So we haven't seen, you know, the argument for the Big 12 and why defense has struggled so much over the years compared them to the SEC was, well, the SEC is not playing against top-tier quarterbacks the way the Big 12 is. Well, it, it's hard to argue that for those three guys that, that we mentioned, that there's a lot of top-tier quarterback play in the Big 12. So as much credit as we want to get to OU, give, give to OU and for them coming along, and they have, let's also remember that the Big 12 isn't what it normally is offensively, which is an interesting trend to watch here in the next three years to see if it gets back to that or, or not believe I'm about to say this, Colby, write this down. All, is the Big 12 becoming a more defensive conference? And that's an interesting discussion. That's an interesting discussion to have. Are we about to see the Big 12 do a complete role reversal here in these, in these next few years where you're getting 
top tier defensive talent, but only maybe OU and Texas are getting offensive talent to, to go with that. That is that's a fascinating discussion. And yeah. how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, think of how did that. that I think this conversation started a couple years ago when we had a lot of head coaching changes in this conference. And if if people were paying attention to what the what these offenses were doing a couple years ago, you were starting to see a shift in terms of the style that teams were playing. Every, I mean, pretty much everybody in the conference has gone away from that high tempo, really fast, spread out style of offense, which again, is going to give you great offensive numbers. It's going to look good as far as the box score goes when you look at total yards and passing yards and all that good stuff. But it puts your defense in such a bad position most of the time that I think teams have decided that it's better for the the other side of the football that you slow it down and, and you don't just, you know, put your defense out there for, for, you know, the majority of the game and allow them to get worn down. So um, we're seeing, you know, most most... Teams in this conference have gone to bigger, heavier personnel packages. They don't play with the same tempo, which naturally is going to bring the offensive production down. Now, because of that, because teams aren't spreading you out also, it's a little bit easier to, I think, bring in defensive linemen and to see defensive linemen play well versus when, you know, you're, you're again, going up-tempo and throwing the ball to the sideline, you know, two out of every three plays uh, and, and basically taking those guys out of the game. So... It's, it's kind of a chicken and the egg type of conversation. I do believe defenses are better. I also think a big reason for that is the shift in offensive philosophy in this league. I would also, to your point about the quarterback play, this is a year where the quarterback play has not been terrific in the conference. So, you know, I, I think all of those things kind of point toward what we're seeing statistically from offenses and defenses in this league in 2020. So, do you think that they're, okay, so let's take OU right now. And we're seeing the way Alabama's playing offense. And we've seen Mississippi State hire Mike Leach. Lane Kiffin plays an up-tempo offense down at Old Miss. LSU went to more of an up-tempo offense. And they seem to like it enough to want to stick with it. Although there's going to be some changes there along the defensive staff at the end of this year. If the SEC over the next three, four years, starts looking more like the Big 12 used to. Does that give, and we'll just say Texas and OU, because I have a hard time seeing anybody else in this conference really being in the conversation for a national championship, but does that give Texas and OU any sort of advantage in, in these next few years if, if they meet an Alabama, an LSU, an Old Miss, in the playoffs, does that give them an opportunity to actually win one of these games? I, maybe. I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with what you look like on the line of scrimmage. And, and the one thing about the SEC that is always better than everybody else is they're better on the line of scrimmage than than everybody else. They are the they are the conference that across the board is bringing in those NFL level defensive linemen. And and for as much as we talk about you know in the past the SEC you know not playing great offense and being, you know, this boring, uh, low-scoring type of football. The reason for that is because they were playing to their strength. Well, now, not only are they opening up offenses and throwing the football a lot more and playing more of a a spread offense and an up-tempo offense, the thing is they still have the ability to play with physicality. And that's where the Big 12, I think, kind of went wrong. They started speeding things up and they went to that spread offense, but they kind of lost the physicality 
part of football when they went that direction. Whereas you look you look at an Alabama, for example, Alabama is is doing that, but they haven't just completely got away from playing with physicality. And and at the end of the day, that's what football is still about. You still have to be more physical than your opponent. You still have to win that fist fight. And even though we're seeing SEC offenses look a lot more like Big 12 offenses have over the last 10 years, they still have the physicality part, you know, when 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 you you may, you know, figure out a way to slow down the the spread fast, you know, skill position part. So, um I think that I think the door is opening, but I don't think I don't think that they're necessarily in jeopardy at this point. Hey, what, what's interesting is, look, I could understand in places like Stillwater, Lubbock, Ames, not well, the Manhattan's different because Bill Snyder's always played you know physical on both sides of the ball, um, and and that just that wasn't going to change. Bill Snyder knew what kind of talent he could get. And he got talent that he knew he could coach him up to be physical. Um, what the thing I, I have a, a problem with is I, I think in, a, in most of the schools in the Big Twelve, say for OU and Texas, you're going to have a problem getting top tier talent on both sides of the ball. One side of the ball is ultimately going to going to suffer for the other. That, that's just the way it is because of the caliber of kid you get. And you're put into a situation where you're taking kids that are more three-star, two-star. If you're lucky, you get a four-star, and you can coach them up to be better. What's inexcusable is that Texas and Oklahoma should have never, under any circumstances, been in the situations where they are where it doesn't matter. I mean, everybody wants to blame the conference. Texas and Oklahoma, it shouldn't matter. You should always get some of the best athletes in the country on both sides of the ball and how they – and I think Texas did I, a crummy job of developing, but I honestly believe, Colby, that for a very long time, OU was only getting top-level talent on the offense. I don't think it was a problem with development as much as it was the kids they were getting weren't that good and weren't near as tough as the recruiting services were making them out to be, I think finally you're seeing that change in Oklahoma. And I don't, I had questions whether or not Lincoln Riley running that style of offense and him essentially being from a Texas Tech coaching tree could really do it. I'm starting to change my mind now. I'm not sure I, you know, the, the full stamp of approval has to come in winning a playoff game. It can't just continue to win Big 12 championships because that's not how you're judged at OU. You're judged on winning national championships. But the fact that OU and Texas, or just more OU than even Texas, just let that one side of the ball slip so bad, that yeah. still got off a win excusable. I mean, it's, yes, in, in, at OSU, I expect it. At OSU, I expect one side of the ball to always be better than the other, no matter what side it is. I, no, at OU, they better be, they better be, damn well better be equal. And, yeah, I, I'm not, not so fan that get, gets in a tizzy over all this, but uh, maybe we're, we're finally seeing that change. Um, yeah. because there's, there's absolutely no reason OU, regard, regardless of whatever conference they're in, 
There is no reason that we should not be comparing them to the likes of Alabama. And that, it, it feels like we're finally there. Yeah. Well, and, and it's it's just but, one specific area, in my opinion. Over the last 10 years, where have they yeah. failed the most? It's it's on the defensive line. And, and we're seeing it this year. Yeah. Like, I don't know if the back seven is any good or not. I don't know if they're any better or not. The thing is, the front four is so good that it really doesn't matter. And, and that's the key to the whole thing. If your front four is good, it, it really doesn't matter if your back seven is good because they're going to be put in so many bad situations that we're not going to find yeah. out how good they are anyway. If your back seven is good, is is average, but your front four is great, then it, it really doesn't even come into play because they dominate the line of scrimmage. So that's where Oklahoma has missed for, for the last decade, basically. They've not had game-changing talents on the defensive line, or you know maybe they get a Neville Gallimore occasionally, like this one guy that is, is maybe that type of dude, but um, they've not had those guys steadily over the course of the last 10 years, and that's why their defense hasn't been any good. I mean, all of a sudden, you see them yeah. having those types of guys on the defensive line, and they're one of the best defenses not only in the Big 12, but in college football. Like, that's, it's as simple as that. Like, I, I think sometimes people want to make this thing so complicated, and on both sides of the football, really, everything is predicated on winning the line of scrimmage. Look at Oklahoma State. They have tons of offensive talent, and they're god-awful offensively. Why? Because they don't have a good offensive line, and every single play, what they're trying to accomplish breaks down when the ball is snapped because yeah. their offensive line is no good. Same thing with the defense. When you can't at least put up a fight on the line of scrimmage where it all starts, none of the rest of it really matters. You're going to get dominated. So for the first time in a long time, Oklahoma actually has dudes that can win that battle, that can impose their will, and prevent the offense from accomplishing anything it wants to, and they look really good again. And, and you know, again, going back to the Big 12 SEC conversation, regardless of the style of play that the SEC has had and has this year, the one thing they've always been able to do on both sides of the football is play with physicality and win the line of scrimmage. So style is almost thrown out the window when you talk about two teams with differing styles. The team that has the better offensive and defensive lines are, are going to win the game. I mean, it's as simple as that. So uh, when, when you have an Oklahoma team that has a great offense but can't do anything against, I mean, you know, I, I remember going into that Oklahoma-Georgia game and, and people talking about how average Georgia looked offensively. And I'm like, yeah, they're not explosive, but if you can't, if you can't stop their offensive linemen from opening up massive holes, they're going to run for 500 yards. It doesn't matter if they're explosive. That's exactly what we saw. I mean, non-explosive offenses look like explosive offenses when they're dominating the line of scrimmage that significantly. So that, to me, is where the gap has been. That, to me, is where Oklahoma in 2020 has closed the gap. Well, you, you it's been a long time since you've had a Tommy, Tommy Harris or Gerald McCoy at, at OU. And that's the thing. I mean, and not only has it been a long time, but OU got known as an offensive school that doesn't play physically on defense. And the SEC, all the SEC, got the reputation of where if you're a big-time defensive lineman, that's where you want to be. Even if you're not at LSU in Alabama, you freeze. Uh, was able to pay people off to go to Ole Miss. Um, you, you know, you you would go to a Tennessee. Um, you'd go to a South Carolina. You'd go to some of these schools because you just felt, as one of those high-caliber defensive linemen, if I go to this conference and play in this conference, they're going to develop me, 
this is where the NFL looks for defensive linemen. They don't look for them in the Big 12. If you go to the Big 12, there's a stigma attached to you, um, which really, honestly, if you think of that way as an 18-year-old kid, it's probably not a good way to think because, I mean, as you pointed out, Neville Gallimore, uh, regardless of conference, regardless of school, regardless of how everybody around you is playing, if you're really that good, NFL scouts know what they're looking at. They're going to be able to tell. They will trap you. Now, do they make mistakes? Yes, they're not completely infallible. Maybe you go lower. Maybe you get signed as a free agent. You get the opportunity to work your way on a roster. But it was just because the SEC had that reputation, OU was losing out on a ton of guys that yeah. normally, yeah, you would be able to get because you, I mean, if you're Bob Stoops, Mike Stoops, Brent Venables, um, you can always say, look, we didn't come here. We had Gerald McCoy. You know, I think you could throw Dusty in there and that and say, who are the guys that we put in the NFL? And what's, what's so Another fascinating layer to this discussion is that if Venables was struggling to get that kid when he was at OU, he certainly didn't struggle to get him when he was at Clemson. And it's not like Clemson is the SEC, it's the ACC for crying out loud. But now it's like there's that reputation. Go play in the SEC or go play for Clemson and you're going to have an NFL career. Well, OU OU feels like they're turning that table now where they can sell some kids on some things. And and I think, you know, you're talking about your defensive back. I think what's interesting is I've talked to people that have different philosophies on the defensive backs here. One, if you're a defensive back, you wanted to play in the Big 12 because you could show that you could cover NFL-caliber receivers. Right. The, the other philosophy was you don't want to go to the Big 12 because – as you said, defensive line so bad that, you know, if you're getting burned, even if you got a lot of talent, it's not going to, it's not going to show well on you that if you're you have to being cover forced longer. to make yeah. plays. Yeah. So that, 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 I, I think that, that to me, I mean, I personally, um, I can decide with, with the, with the idea of, yeah, I'm going to go show I can cover NFL type receivers. So I'm going to the big 12. Um, even if it looks a little bird and I get drafted a little bit later, I feel like I'm going to have a better chance to make the team than maybe somebody in the SEC because I've covered more of these guys where maybe you only had to cover you know, Julio Jones for a game. Well, I was covering Julio Jones-type players or guys that may be just under him nine, ten games a year. Right. So – it's not, it's not going to face me. You may have worked your butt off and had a really good game against him for one week, but every other week you can kind of relax. There was no relaxing for, for defensive backs in the Big 12. Yeah. None. And what again, these conversations fascinate me because now I just kind of wonder, do we see a dip in the quarterback play in the Big 12 if the defensive line gets good? Because I think you'll always get good safeties here, especially if you're going to run the ball um, you should get good safeties to play in the Big 12 because it seems like the Big 12 always has guys that there's always been this, this attitude of toughness amongst their safeties, and hopefully that can kind of continue. More, more Roy Williams types bigger, but I mean, Earl Thomas came out of the Big 12 for crying out loud. Um, so you can, I, safeties, I don't worry about, but cornerbacks, yeah, I do. 
because you just don't want to see a dip in play anywhere on the field if you're Oklahoma. You want to you want to get them all, and you got and you're in a position now where I think OU's probably better position now recruiting than, than they have been in a very long time. Yeah, with all those and and everything you just mentioned is exactly why you know defensive linemen, premier defensive linemen, have stayed in the SEC because they've been able to showcase their talents in the SEC because that style was conducive to NFL. Uh, personnel being able to watch and evaluate you at a, at a realistic level versus if you have success in the Big 12, there's still going to be that question about like how much of that translates to NFL success, right? Like So that's that's where I think there's been the big breakdown. And then you had this go on for like 10 years, and then all of a sudden part of it just becomes, like you said, stigma uh, attached to the Big 12 that you know that's just the style of football they play. So like I think it started out innocently enough that, you know, guys were just going to the SEC because that's where they were going to play a style of football that best showcased how good they were on the line of scrimmage and was going to get them paid at the next level. And then so much time went by where there was such a drastic difference in the style of football that was being played that the stigma got attached to the Big 12, that this is the type of football that's being played and you're not going to be able to go there. You're not going to be able to, I mean, Watch, watch a game film over the last 10 years and how many times do you see a defensive lineman even in the play? Because, you know, f- there's been so many times where teams are getting the ball out of quarterback's hands almost immediately. They're throwing the ball to the sideline. They're getting it on the perimeter. They're not allowing anything to happen in the middle of the field. And then once they do start to move the ball, all of a sudden that up-tempo uh, style of football goes into play and you completely take that element out of the game. So, you know, it's kind of just been this perfect storm where that's the way that it started and it snowballed to this point that the Big 12 just found themselves in a bad position. And like I said, just a couple years ago when we had all these new head coaching changes in the conference and you brought in Neil Brown and Matt Wells and Chris Kleiman and, uh, you know, Matt Campbell, like all of these guys, and Lincoln Riley has done this since he got to OU, all of these guys are playing they're still playing a spread offense, but they're not playing with the same tempo. They're using heavier personnel packages. A lot of these teams are using tight end slash H-back guys. Uh, it's it's just not the same, you know, spread them out, up-tempo type of, of like Texas Tech-style offense that it had been for such a long period of time, which allows, once again, the line of scrimmage to come back into play. Now, do you see sort of with the Big 12, this is the thing the Big 12 is always going to fight um, against, the SEC. If I'm recruiting a kid, if I'm say Arkansas, and I decide that I'm I'm gonna I see a lineman in Texas that I want a defensive lineman in Texas that I want. I know OU's in on him. I know Texas is in on him. The five star kid, but I'm like, you know what? I'm going after him. And I think I can get him. I think what I could sell him on is like, look, you come to the SEC. I know OU and Texas are really good. But the only chance you've really got to get better is when you play against each other. You're not going to play the tight. You're not going to play the, the offensive lineman that we're going to play every single week. You come to the SEC, even here at Arkansas, where yeah, no, we're we're going to be looking hard to stay with LSU and A and M and Bam and Auburn. I mean, we're going to be competitive. We're going to be working really hard to get into them. But I guarantee you you will be better prepared to go to the NFL than you will here because there is such a drop-off between those two. And when you look at the look at our conference, we don't have that drop-off. We, we don't. Yeah, 
Are we as good as LSU? No, but we're not four steps below them the way Oklahoma State is OU or Texas Tech is OU. We're about two and a half, three at the most, and I guarantee there are going to be years that we get them that, you know, you come to OU, yeah, you're going to rack up Big 12 championships, but I, I don't think you'll be as prepared for the rigors of the NFL as you will here in the SEC. Is that that seems to me the selling point. Yeah, absolutely. That that that, that OU was that that OU and Texas are going to have to fight. Um, but once you start showing you, you're putting kids in the NFL, once you start showing, well, hey, we can go to the playoffs and win them, despite the lack of competition in the conference. What does it matter? You know, what is it? So, so you go there every week. Look, we got guys that are successful in the NFL too. Now, you want to win a national championship? Or you want to finish third or fourth in the SEC every year and go to Arkansas? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. You get, to, you get to play immediately, and you get to play against competition that is going to give NFL scouts a a real good look at how good you are. Yeah, it's you know, it, I think for OU, the, the culture's finally getting to the point where you feel like it's a tough physical culture again, um, and that's something that Rufus Alexander always talked about. The difference between OU and Texas was when he was recruited by Texas, Matt Brown, hey, you come in, we're going to love you up, you're going to have a chance to start. You know, there was, he, he even said it felt like it was a country club atmosphere. He said when Mike Stoops recruited him, he said he was playing that run and said, you're going to have a chance to compete. Can't guarantee you to play, can't guarantee you to start, but you're going to have a chance. You know, and that's what you want. That's what you want for us. We're going to be yeah. hard on you. You know, they, they were honest about it and how and why all that changed with Mike, if it did change at all with Mike uh, when he came back. Because I don't think he's a bad coach. You just think there were some weird things going on at OU at the time that he came back. But it just, you know, the, the, if OU can start to sell like that again, because it always felt like OU's got tougher kids than Texas. If OU can that tough kid again. You know, that tough kid that the SEC gets, the tough kid that, that USC uh, used to seem to get under Pete Carroll, then I do think there's an incredibly high ceiling for this yeah. program that we haven't seen in quite some time that we can start to see again. Agreed. Hey, I want to switch gears. Uh, Oklahoma State loses to TCU on Saturday. Um, first of all, to win the turnover battle 5-1 to one and lose to me is just unbelievably shocking. I mean, I, I don't know how many times in the history of football that's happened, but um, that's that's the case. Here, I'm going to give you this stat, and just tell me what you think of it. In 14 of, of, of Mike Gundy's 16 years at Oklahoma State, he's lost three or more games, and the last time that he lost, let, lost, lost less than three games was 2011. So it's now been nine years since Oklahoma State has had a season where they've gotten through the end having lost less than three games? Um, pretty typical OSU, isn't it? I mean, I, okay, let me let me ask you this. Of those, those 14 or six, during those 14 years when they've lost three games, they've probably... You know, you're looking at Mike Gundy's career. They've only been better than OU once in that time. Probably. I would say and twice. What's interesting is, okay, 
All right, I'll give you that twice. They've I'll been, say 11, been 11 and 13. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you 13. 13's a game that they definitely should have won. Yeah. Had, had their opportunities, that one should have got away from them. Um, so there's one thing. Now, what's interesting is that they've been better than – they. I don't know if they've necessarily been better than Texas, but they figured out ways to, to, to beat – didn't they have like a five – didn't they do Texas like five years in a row? At one point, yeah, there was some. Maybe so, it was, I think it was like a. It was either a win streak or like a road. It was some sort of weird road win streak, maybe. Yeah. So he figured out a way to beat Texas. The problem you're going to have at Oklahoma State, and this is where people will get mad at me for saying this, is yeah, you're. I don't know that you're ever going to be heads and shoulders above anybody in the Big Twelve. Everybody's about everybody is about even. So every week that Oklahoma State plays a game, it's a fight. I mean, there's very few teams in the Big Twelve that you're just going to look at. I Kansas, yes, Oklahoma State's way better than Kansas. They should go dominate them. They did. Um, but Baylor usually has comparable talent. Iowa State, West Virginia has comparable talent to Oklahoma State, and. I'm a Jimmy's and Joe's guy versus an X's and O's guy. So when that is the situation, and look, we could probably go pick apart a lot of Mike Dundee's games and and look at certain calls here, there, and say, all right, this is where they lost it here. Maybe he should have done this here, whatever. But when you're about even, you're gonna you're just gonna have games that you lose because the mar- because because the margin of error is so thin in those games that one two plays can make. An, an absolute difference. I mean, only this year, I mean, you may have to go back to 2011, but this is probably the best defensive unit Mike had during his time there, wouldn't Absolutely. you say? Yeah, by a, by a long shot. So, I mean, and like we just said, one side of the ball is usually going to be sacrificed. We had a good defense this year and a not-so-good offense this year. That's Oklahoma State. And it's hard to imagine that anybody can come in and say, and put together like a five year run where the talent level is going to not only be better than everybody else in the big 12 who is not OU, but rival OU and maybe figure out a way to win a couple of conference championships during that five year run. That guy doesn't exist. It's not going to happen at Oklahoma state. There's some things that need to, to change with within the administration, and I preach this from tops of all kinds of mountains. But for me, it's not that big a deal. I mean, three, four games. Look, if you're winning eight games every year at Oklahoma State, you're winning nine games every year at Oklahoma State. That is a successful year. Some people don't want to hear that, but it just speaks to the level of program that Oklahoma State is, and because OU has a sixty-year. 60-year head start on you. I'm giving a damn about football. You're going to be hard-pressed to, to get up to that level that, that that some want. So go ahead, fire Mike Gundy, but good luck finding that guy that you're looking for that's going to make Oklahoma State so consistent that every year they're competing for conference championships because at some point, Texas is going to get back to being Texas, and it may not matter how good you are, you're probably not going to be better than them. 
Yeah, look, I, I think everything you just said is absolutely fair. And this kind of goes back to the Bedlam conversation we had a few weeks ago where you start talking about realistic expectations with Oklahoma State beating Oklahoma. And Mike Gundy's record against Oklahoma is terrible. But, like, the expectation isn't that he should be 500 either. Like, nobody expects that Oklahoma State is going to beat Oklahoma, you know, trade win for win, go 500. Like, that's unrealistic. Oklahoma State isn't Oklahoma. They're never going to be Oklahoma. You mentioned a 60-year head start. Oklahoma is one of the the traditional powers of the sport, and it's just it's never going to happen in our lifetime where Oklahoma State surpasses Oklahoma. All that said, we all agree that the record against Oklahoma should be somewhat better than two and fourteen, right? Same thing with with I think Oklahoma State over the last ten years and and their overall records. Like, I don't think anybody has this expectation that Oklahoma State should be winning conference titles every year or even, it, you know, one of the best two teams in the conference every single year. But if you don't have the expectation that that once every four or five years, you're in position to do that and you, you get it done at some point, I mean, what's the point of it then? Like, you should at least have this expectation that, I don't know, I don't know where you set this bar, but... You have to set the bar at, at somewhere at, at getting to the mountaintop at least once a decade, right? Yeah, in four or five years, that's I mean, that that's reasonable because you're 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 operating on the premise that you're gonna get guys in as freshmen, you're gonna develop them, and by the time they're juniors or seniors, they're gonna be ready to roll. Right. Um and there's a look, there's a lot of things out of your control and fans hate to hear this, but but injuries. Um Chuba Hubbard was Chuba Hubbard either had mental issues or physical issues this year. And we've seen him walking around in a booth. We're not going to see him for the rest of the year this year. Um, should they have played Des Jackson more? Yeah, because I think that, I think that the, the team would have fed off Des Jackson's energy a lot more than Chuba's. I don't, I don't know that Chuba was ever fully invested in this season, to be quite honest. And he probably did himself a disservice and the program a disservice by coming back one more year. And that one year for, for him was more about improving his draft status than necessarily it was to make Oklahoma State better. Might have made the fans feel good, but ultimately I think we look back on it now and look hindsight is always twenty twenty. It was a bad decision for, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think had he gone, you, you certainly would have seen Des Jackson. Uh, you would have been forced to, to play Des Jackson a lot sooner. Um, injury to Spencer Sanders at the beginning of the year didn't help. Watching him regress and get to this really weird point in his career where, I mean, the dude is incredibly emotional. Um, you can get into, into that kid's head real easy. Um, and we saw it in Texas. We saw it at Texas Christian. We saw it, we saw it at OU. But four or five years is reasonable. I, I think the one, the one caveat to that is is with kids leaving after three years now, if they're good enough to play in the NFL, there is a chance that, that you could have a guy like Thurman Thomas or Barry Sanders come along or a guy like Hartley or, uh, I mean, you could have a stud. I mean, in Oklahoma State, gets, there, there's always that stud that seems to emerge in Oklahoma State. You can have that caliber of player, but by the time the rest of everybody else is to catch up with him, he may decide to leave or a couple of guys may decide to leave and the ones behind them may not be near as good. And that certainly will, will hamper a four, a four year stretch. Um, 
it's not an easy issue to solve. I mean, because I don't know, Colby, I, I don't know that Oklahoma State can ever get five-star talent consistently at any position. They're in. Yeah, it's not right going to happen. It, consistently, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Like I said, the, the expectation isn't that you beat Oklahoma every year or every other year. The, the expectation isn't that you win the Big 12 every year or every other year. But but the program is in a place where you should at least be on the doorstep occasionally. And, I mean, you're, you're now looking at a conference that brought back the and, – and this was a, a topic yesterday that Mike Gundy even addressed, but you're in a conference now that brought back the conference championship game – and we're about to have, what, number, is it the fourth conference championship game we've had? Oklahoma State has now missed out on that game four years in a row. We've had five different teams make that game. I mean, Oklahoma State's football program and under that, Mike Gundy has accomplished enough Texas that... And Texas has been down. And Texas has been down. And Texas has so, been down, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I, like, I think there's, the, for some reason, there's this idea that if you criticize Mike Gundy for not being as good on the high end, you're saying he's done a bad job, and that's not the case. Mike Gundy's done a great job. The program is in a place where this is why there are expectations that you compete at the highest level a little bit more often because he's done such a good job and sustained success for so long. But I don't think it's unreasonable to say, hey, once every few three, four, five years, you should be in that game. And, and you know, he made the point, well, there were years where essentially Oklahoma State was playing in that game when there wasn't a Big 12 title game, which is which is true. But... Again, we're, we're also, I mean, this is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sport, right? Like, what you accomplished 10 years ago, what you accomplished 7 years ago, isn't extremely relevant for the high school kids that you're recruiting today. So, um, you know, if you haven't done anything in, in 3, 4, 5 years, you haven't been right there on that doorstep, and you've fallen short, you know, you, you've got to correct that. And that's kind of where Oklahoma State, I think, is. They Again... They haven't lost less than three games since 2011. That how close have they really been? Not, not really. I mean, they've, they've been kind of middle of the pack. It, it's a tough one to swallow because you're seeing Iowa State make that game. It's one thing if it yeah. was OU Texas every year. Baylor did it so a year Baylor ago after going game. through one of the biggest scandals in college sports history. And then Iowa State makes it this year. And incredibly enough, Oklahoma State beat Iowa State this yeah. year. Which I mean. Uh, when Oklahoma State beat Iowa State and Kansas State, I mean, everybody's kind of rubbing their hands together going, well, yeah. how good can this team be? Because they just beat two teams that OU couldn't beat. And then the Texas game happened. Yep. And gave up a lot of big plays, turned the ball over a lot. I mean, really let one get away. And that, that's what taunted them. I think they could have had an easier time getting over the OU debacle had they beaten Texas, had they beaten Texas, Gundy could have, could have easily rallied the troops and said, look, still in control of our own destiny, guys, in one game, we can get another, we can get another crack at these dudes. Right. We, gotta, we can get another shot at them. So I want you to remember that bad taste in your mouth right now. Let's not overlook our next opponent, but just remember, if we keep doing what we have done up to that point and beat everybody on our schedule, we can get them again, and we can get them when it really counts. But because you lost that Texas game, those kids knew at that point you're going to need too much, too much help. It was out of your hands to get into the Big Twelve Championship game. And I think mentally they just got shot. I think Chuba checked out. Um, you know, we've talked about Spencer Sanders and the defense. 
Um, while they played better against TCU, they were still giving up big plays in that game. And, and for a, a two-week stretch against Texas and o, against Tech and OU, they weren't the same guys. They did not come out with the same sense of urgency, with the same care and the same aggression uh, that they had all year long. I mean, that, that OU game, the, the OU game was so mentally damaging to them. And, and it, Colby, that game was over before each team took the field. Yeah. And it's, it's mind-boggling because I watched that defense all year long. I staked a lot of my reputation into that defense and how good they were. And look, it's not, not their fault that I did that, but I just... I still don't think they're good. I, I, I like. I don't think that they're all of a sudden bad. I think there are a lot of factors in, like the Texas Tech game, dude. They looked as uninterested as as I've seen any team in college football to start that thing. And then I think, yeah. I think when it became the back and forth, you started to see the competitive juices kick in, and they really got engaged. And all you know, all of a sudden, the effort level looked like it it drastically improved. But out of the gate in that game, like they were coming off the Oklahoma loss, it kind of felt like. Uh, the season, they had just watched their season completely go up in smoke, and, and there was a lot of just, I, I think, lethargic feelings about what they were doing that day. But, like, I don't think they're a bad... The other thing is, and we know this about, you know, we've seen this with Oklahoma, when you have a one-sided football team, I think it becomes very frustrating. And, and for the Oklahoma State defense yeah. this year, like... That group has to be frustrated because there are games that they do everything in their power. The TCU game is a great example of this. Like, you're not going to pitch a shutout. Yes, they gave up some big plays, but my God, if they had a little bit of help, they, they produced five turnovers, for crying out loud. Like, if you get a little bit of yeah. help, you win. You There's no reason you should have lost that game. They have no help from the you other side. Twice. Of the game. Scored twice off those turnovers, you win the ball game. And, and, and you had cracks. You had cracks twice in that game late to win it. Yeah. Or not, maybe not win it, but, but at least tie it. And Spencer Sanders throws an interception, which, I mean, yeah, I'm going to chalk it up to him because I think he threw the ball a little bit hard to bounce off the tight end's hand. But even after that, you still got the ball back with another chance to tie it, and, and, and you couldn't yeah. do it. So if, if Knowles and Gundy have been able to keep them from finger-pointing good on them because it would be very easy to do, but going back to that OU game, I mean, from the from the before the offense even took the field, the defense just looked shot after that first big play that Ramondre Stevenson yep. ripped off. And you had been giving up big plays all year, but you found a way to kind of rally after that big play. And that's that, that, that's where it, it, it just scratching my head because that was a team that loved to tackle, loved to hit, they flew to the ball. Uh, they did a great job of having multiple players around the ball. And for two games, it just, it, it was just gone. Yeah. And it's like, God, what the hell happened to you guys? You're football players. You should have, the defense alone should have wanted a piece of OU. Because, hey, we got a chance to get, the defense should have believed it could have forced OU into some bad situations. Should have believed it could shut OU down. Now, whether or not that's realistic, that's another argument. But they should have believed it, and they didn't. And we saw them kind of get back. And now, you got a game against Baylor, Colby? Look, I watched Baylor play OU. Yeah. Dave Aranda is – Dave Aranda does a very good job of coaching that team. 
they fight. They were they were not afraid of OU. Now, part of that, there was a little bit of culture instilled when Art Bryles was there about, you know, Baylor kind of had that attitude of, look, we're going to go pick on the big boys. Yeah, we're going to pick on the big boys and force them into a fight or see if we can't frustrate them. Look, they, they, they did not back down to OU. There's no way they're backing down to Oklahoma State. This game Saturday for OSU is just as dangerous as that TCU game is. Maybe they, more. And I yeah, maybe more. Won. I don't even know if, like, can Oklahoma State score? I mean, if, if Baylor plays the same level of defense they played on Saturday night, I, I mean, does Oklahoma State even score a, a touchdown? I mean, that sounds crazy to say, but, like, they have, they've been so bad on that side of the football, they're probably going to hit a big play somewhere along the way. But um, I, I, I fully expect that the Baylor defense is going to dominate that matchup. Yeah, I do. I, I'm kind of with you on that. And if Oklahoma State gets hit in the mouth early, and let's say Baylor has some success and drives down the field, keeps OSU's defense on the field, do they get their heads down and kind of crawl under the hole the way that they did against OU? And I don't think, I think what's the relations article, OSU hasn't won down in Waco in five years. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, it's some, there's some streak like that. They've not been successful in Waco. No, this is a huge, this is a huge test for them. Yeah. And, the thing about OSU is, especially after this past week, don't get fooled into thinking that this team of two losses is just going to go lay down to you because, A, Baylor's played everybody tight this year. I mean, Dave Aranda has probably had the most frustrating season of anybody in college football because he's probably going back through all his things like, man, we were in this game, we were in this game, yeah. we played OU. Oh, oh, across the board. God, how do we... How do we only have two wins? What the hell? And is I mean, the, the first thing I look for to find out whether or not you're a well-coached team is will they play hard for you? Are they quitting on you when things go bad? They don't. And, and give credit to Matt Rule because he's got a lot of those Matt Rule kids and he's kind of picking up where Matt Rule left off. And yeah, we got to judge him on whether or not he can kind of keep that same mentality going over the next few years. But, I mean, for a, for a two-win team, Colby, they don't play like it. Agreed. They, they don't play like a two-win team that, that just doesn't want to be on the field. They play like some guys that are like, that have some pride, that want to win some ball games. And I know OSU was in trouble this week. Would not have said that a few weeks ago, but they are in trouble. And I just, Quite frankly, I don't know where this team is mentally. I don't know how much longer they want to be on the field yeah. if they just want to get the season over with. But it's just, it's not, they're not the same bunch of guys that we saw at the beginning of the year that was rolling along. I mean, one big gut punch just seems to have taken it out again. Yeah, agreed. I, Mike Gundy said that he thought they played with great effort against TCU on Saturday, and I agree with that. I, I thought the effort was there. I thought they, they, showed that they wanted to win that game. But I would say a third loss has to be incredibly deflating. Again, an offense that just can't seem to put it together. And this Baylor game, yeah, I, I'm curious to see if... I'm, I think there, it's realistic to ask the question if we see that same sort of effort against Baylor on Saturday or we see you know it, it drastically decrease simply because, again, the, the air is gone. Uh, I mean, everything that this team thought 
was in its control just a month ago has completely gone up in smoke, and they went from being in the driver's seat to win this conference to, I mean, middle of the pack at best with, again, a team that that I, I, I don't know that they're going to beat Baylor. In fact, I, I mean, if I'm if I'm picking a winner today, I think the longer we talk about this matchup, I'm, I'm leaning more toward Baylor winning. <laughs> Me too. That's, that's sad. And that look, the thing about playing that this sport is that you're going to have seasons with high expectations. Every coach, every program is going to go through seasons when the expectations are at one place and you don't meet them. And the thing that you fight today is one, social media, NFL, is one, social media, two, you got the NFL, and maybe you could re- reverse those, and three, just people kind of talking to these kids uh, and, and, and listening to us about how pointless it is to play an X bowl game or this bowl game or whatever, and you're Mike Gundy, you've got to now kind of rally, the, you've got to somehow rally the troops and, and, and try you know, look, no, the season didn't turn out the way you want, but damn it, don't you have some pride? <laughs> don't you right. want to go? Don't you want? Don't you want to go play? Don't you want to win a ball game? You don't want to go out and lose to this two two win team. You're better than that, and I, that may be a very difficult thing to do. Um, and even Mike Gundy, when he admitted that he was more up after the OU game than his players were. That was alarming. It was very alarming because as a player, you should want to get back on the field and get that taste out of your mouth. You shouldn't at that level. And this is where I'm I'm different than a lot of people. I believe motivation is very overrated once you sign that scholarship paper. Because at that point, you should be motivated enough without somebody having to give you a rah-rah speech to go out and do it yourself. I mean, if you really need a coach to motivate you, then you got issues. Agreed. Those kids. I mean, if, if, if they're looking to Mike Gundy, come on, say something, make us feel better. No. The fact that you get your ass kicked should make you want to go out and practice as hard as you possibly can that week, get in the weight room, do whatever the hell it takes to get better. And if you're relying on the coach, then yeah, you're, you're shot because there's nothing he can say to make you feel better because you've already put that doubt in your mind. And, and, and the whole idea of rah-rah speeches and halftime speeches and whatever and Coach Rowley, I just, I've never believed in that crap, never believed in the cliches. It's all about your will as an individual to want to go out and kick the guy's ass across from you. And that, they still have that. They, sh- they showed glimpses of it on Saturday. Let's see if they got it again this week versus Baylor, but not feeling really good about it. No doubt. Eric, always appreciate it, my friend. Uh, We will do it again next Tuesday. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thank you very much, Colby. Appreciate it. Eric G., co-host of the Pat Jones Show on the Tulsa Sports Animal, joining me every Tuesday on the Colby Daniels Podcast. This podcast is presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products. You can visit the website, abotanicalcompany.com, or give them a call, 405-458-9699. Ask questions, educate yourself on their line of natural medicine products and how they can improve your life daily. Local ownership, great ownership that does great things within the community around them. So again, give them a chance, check it out. You can order online, easy and safe pickup, abotanicalcompany.com. If you want to hit me up, feel free to do so at Colby underscore Daniels on Twitter. 
Colby.Daniels on Instagram. Just a reminder, coming up on Saturday, Mike Steely and I have pregame coverage for Oklahoma's matchup against West Virginia. That is an 11 a.m. kick in Morgantown. So our pregame coverage will begin at 9 a.m. I will tweet that uh, link to the stream at Colby underscore Daniels. All right, that is it. Everybody, have a great day. Stay safe, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Podcast is over.